0: Open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. For those joining this sermon at another time, in another place, you may read Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, about Isaiah's view of the glory and holiness of God, yet without wrath. The day that's coming is a day of wrath, intense anger, Jesus Christ will tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God and sprinkle all his garments with the blood of his enemies. Too gory for you? Then Christianity is too good for you. Because that is beautiful Christianity. And the destruction of the enemies of Jesus Christ who would not submit themselves to him. This is Thanksgiving week. I love the word, the concept, the practice, the day, the opportunities of giving thanks. Part of me would rather preach about Thanksgiving, but what a waste of your time and my time, because he's convicted me to preach about this subject And the Bible's filled with this subject. And we have our Thanksgiving times in this church. And we have our Thanksgiving times in our homes. And we have our Thanksgiving times from house to house. So I want to bring sermon number three of warnings about hell to you this morning. God's men must preach the whole counsel of God and hold nothing profitable back. And so, with Paul, with Peter, with Jesus especially, We have to preach about hell. We here in this subject need to deal with death, the second death, the lake of fire, and the terrible day of judgment that's coming. I'm going to preach this subject as Jesus and Paul did without regard to fatalistic presumption of salvation. Giving God all the glory. There isn't a church on earth that has laid out any clearer than we that eternal life is an unconditional gift by the grace of God, by seven proofs, which are categories of proofs. God being our helper, no other church has explained so clearly the five phases of salvation and how four of them are the absolute prerogative of God. But election is no savior and justification is no savior to presumption. And presumption is to think that you're elect and that you're justified. That's presumption. Because it's to be proven, and it's to be examined and proven. Paul would write in his second letter to the Corinthian church, the church that he founded, examine yourselves, prove your own selves, see whether they be reprobates or not. And that's our job. And so there's a measure of fear that comes up when this subject is broached properly for us to examine ourselves, prove ourselves, and to make our calling and election sure, which is the text that you've opened your Bibles to in 2 Peter chapter 1. Those that presume on election or imputed righteousness or such like are devilishly deceived fools because they're presuming on something that no one in the Bible presumed upon. But they proved whether those things applied to them or not. And I want you to prove it to yourself, and I want to prove it to myself, and I want us to prove it to each other, so that when the day of our death comes, we can with joy approach that day. And the Bible tells us how to do that. I left you on Wednesday evening with singing and verses that I prefer in some respects than this subject, but I left you with boldness in the day of judgment. Do you remember? First John four sixteen and 17 tell us how we can have boldness in the day of judgment, and I'm thankful that God put that in his Bible, and I thank him for it. Arminians presume on eternal life without obedience due to their decision for Jesus, and they're devilishly deceived. Fatalists, who are Many Calvinists and those like Calvinists that are ignorant of the Bible fatalists presume on eternal life without obedience by their false assumption they are God's elect. It is a presumption that you are God's elect until you prove you are God's elect. Right. And it is visible. So we can tell if you're God's elect or not because it's not a matter of the heart. God's election, and justification comes out in a person's life. So that is their walk. It is not their heart. It is their walk. I fear, and I am half preaching against this error, and half preaching to provoke you to examine yourselves and to know what the Bible says about hell, but I am preaching against the false idea that you're not under condemnation right now. Everyone loves to read Romans 8, 1, the first half. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. They love that verse. And be very, listen to me carefully. They love that first half of the verse because they're on the way to hell. But they want to comfort themselves. So they love that first half of the verse. There is, therefore now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That is a true statement. But how do we know if we are in Christ Jesus where there is no condemnation? The second half of the verse. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Those are the ones going to heaven. Those people that lose their spirit and blow off their mouths... They're going to hell. Romans 8, 1 doesn't have anything to do with them because it's us walking after the spirit and not after the flesh that are in the first half of Romans 8. And that is what I am trying to convey to you. And that's what the apostle conveyed all kinds of different ways, even in Romans. Romans 6, you know, is so powerful about not being a slave to sin any longer, but being a slave to righteousness. Romans 8, It just just continues on, repeating about walking after the flesh or walking after the spirit. And the flesh and the works of the flesh are listed in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. And the spirit and its fruit is listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And these things can be easily known and identified in a person's life. And it is not hard to know who's going to heaven and who isn't. It is not a matter of the heart. It is a matter of the life and it is a changed life, and it is things that we walk in, and it is things that we do that are visible. Everyone wants to hide behind, you don't know my heart. I don't want to know your heart. I'm going to look at your life, and that is your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. When you open your mouth, I know whether you're saved or not. James chapter 1 and verse 26 says, A man that seemeth to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, that man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before the Father is this, visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and keeping himself unspotted from the world. Lord, help us. That is the standard of God's word and that is the standard of God's word throughout. There is no presumption. You don't get to heaven and say, you died for me. He's going to say, I never knew you. You're my Lord. I never knew you. Get over here on my left hand where the goats are into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels because you're cursed, because you never showed a life of love toward the least of these my brethren. You never got out of your little cozy house and out of your comfort zone to do anything for them. I have no use for you. It's the word of God over and over and over. Who made the difference? In the virgins. They did. Why did Jesus preach it that way? I thought he made the difference. From our standpoint, we are either wise virgins, virgins, or we are foolish virgins. That's right. From God's standpoint, he knows who the wise virgins are already. He's known them before the foundation of the world. But when Jesus preaches, he doesn't fall back on fatalistic presumptions of grace. He looks and presses duty to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Do we love his appearing? Paul would say there is a crown of righteousness waiting in heaven for all those that love the appearing of Jesus Christ. Who loves the appearing of Jesus Christ? Those who think about it once in a while in their hearts? Or those who have changed lives because they want to be confidently serving the Lord when Jesus comes. The parable of the talents. What kind of a return have you got on the grace of God? Everybody wants to talk with the grace of God. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Okay? If you have so much marvelous grace in your life, show it to us. How has it changed you? What is the fruit from the marvelous grace of God in your life? Where is it? Brethren, that is how we want to look at the Word of God and hear it. No one preaches the marvelous grace of God, not tainted with the works of men like we do. But that is not the time for that right now. I'm not going to preach out of both sides of my mouth. And when I am preaching about the marvelous grace of God, there is not much warning in my preaching like there's going to be in this sermon. Neither was it with the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 is not Romans 6. The last part of Romans 8 is not the first part of Romans 8. You better know the difference. You don't get to the last part of Romans 8 unless the first part of Romans 8 is true of you. And Romans 5 doesn't apply to you if you're not in Romans 6. And if you don't know the difference, that's some learning that you need to put into the Word of God. There is no confidence in election or imputed righteousness without all our diligence. 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1, you're already there, I hope. Verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence. All diligence. That's a lot of effort. All diligence. This is the apostle. This is apostolic religion. This is our gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what is preached. Beside this, giving all diligence... Add to your faith, virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. We have preached these things before, and I don't have time to preach them right now, but this eight is such a beautiful, simple little list to learn what the Bible says and how it defines each one of these terms. And whether if you have these things, they're known to all men. If you have these things. But you can't have these things at home. You can't have these things in your heart. These things are the way we walk. And we're to give all diligence to them. We're to be doing these things all the time. And it comes to verse 8. For if these things be in you. Are these things that God does or are these things that we do? do. These are things that we do. And we're to give our diligence to these things. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He that saith, I know him, and doesn't have fruit like this, what does the Bible say? He is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is how we abound in fruit in these eight things. This is what the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, if we really know Jesus, this is how it changes us. These eight things come out in our lives. Verse 9, but he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. He's short-sighted, and so he's looking at what's in front of him on a daily basis instead of what's the next day in heaven. He's blind, cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren. Peter writing, don't be like that, verse 9. Be like verses 5 through 8. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence. So he mentions that word again, of effort, of labor, of hard work. Give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Because you cannot presume on election. You cannot say, I know I'm elect and not a reprobate. No, you are to examine yourself and prove yourself. Prove it. Paul said, I think that we've proved it. Did everybody know that Paul was elect? Definitely. Look at his life. It's 2 Corinthians 13, 5, if you're wondering where that verse came from. Make your calling and election sure. And that's what I want, brethren, for you, for me, for us as a church, and for every one of God's elect that is sitting here. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Notice it doesn't say, if Jesus did this for you, ye shall never fall. It says, if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Because the point of these verses is how we lay hold of eternal life. Right. And verse 11, For if ye never fall, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly. I love those words. You want to get into heaven? It's called an entrance. How do you want to get in? Through the crack of the door? Or do you want to have an abundant entrance? Would you like it ministered to you? Would you like servants there, angels, throwing those doors open and the gates open to take you in? It's doing eight things. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall, for so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then Peter takes four verses to say, while I'm alive, this is what I'm going to preach to you. While I'm alive, I'm going to remind you of these things. I am not going to remind you of all that Jesus did for you. I'm going to remind you of what you better be doing for Jesus, or you're going to be rejected. I'm going to be reminding you of what you need to do to make your calling and election sure. And so for four verses... I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them. Because we need constant reminders. When we have the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, we need constant reminders. Does that gospel message include me? Did Jesus on the cross include me? We can lay hold of eternal life by fulfilling the evidence that the New Testament teaches. And this is one of the prime passages. When you tell somebody about election, they want to know, well, how do I know if I'm one of God's elect? 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. Very simple. There's other places to go to as well. Let's look at Philippians chapter 3 and see the apostle Paul about this matter. Do you believe that there is one resurrection coming, both of the just and the unjust? John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, says, marvel not at this for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good under the resurrection of life and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. What does it say about those that come out for the resurrection of life? John 5, 28 and 29. They that had good done for them? Or they that have done good? They that have done good. You say, it sounds like work salvation. You bet it sounds like work salvation. Absolutely. That is the beauty of the gospel. It sounds absolutely like work salvation. That's exactly how it's going to sound in this church. And it's never going to be compromised. Because as soon as you presume an election without works, you are a liar and stupid enough to believe your own lie. The only way to know that you're elect is not that you believe the doctrine of election. The devils believe the doctrine of election. A lot of church fathers believe the doctrine of election. That is evidence of nothing at all. I can teach a parrot to believe the doctrine of election. It's, does your life look like an elect child of God? That's how you prove election. Because you're either elect or you're a reprobate. So Paul said... Third time, 2 Corinthians 13:5, examine yourselves and prove your own selves to see whether you be in the faith and are not a reprobate. Why is he telling a church where he converted them, he led them, he formed them as a church, he stayed with them for two years, and this is at the end of his second epistle? Why is he writing such things? Because like Peter, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to be pressing you to bring forth the evidence of God's electing grace. God's electing grace is magnificent, but it is really quite irrelevant if you don't have the evidence for it. Because if you don't have the evidence for it, why should I tell you about it? Because I'm going to comfort you in your sins. It's not going to happen here. And that is the balance that no one has been able to figure out because they don't want to go to the Bible. They can't understand how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man goes together. The sovereignty of God is absolutely 100% without any mitigation responsible for for the eternal life of his elect. And yet, there is no evidence that you are in that number by anything but a life turned over to Jesus Christ and bearing much fruit. John 15, 1-5 works here, doesn't it, Zach? Any branch in me that doesn't beareth fruit, he purgeth and taketh away. Because we're supposed to be bearing much fruit. And I want that fruit in each of your lives so that as we approach the day of our death or the day of the Lord's coming, we are ready to meet Him with fruitful lives, looking for His coming confidently and having, yes, my desire for you, boldness, In the day of judgment. Boldness in the day of judgment isn't because the doctrine we know or the doctrine we've heard or the seven proofs of this or the five phases of that. What is it? It's love of the brethren. Because God is love and as he is, so are we in this world. Did you hear me on Wednesday evening? We were singing some wonderful songs. I'll fly away. Well, you might not. But we were singing it, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing it with you. I love Wednesday evening with you. But we need to examine ourselves and make sure. And we need to do it on a continual basis. And we, just, we, we need to abound in the things that the Lord wants in our lives. Abound! Let's, just, let's not make it... I'm not sure. Let's make it sure. Did it say sure in Second Peter? Do I need to turn, turn us back there? Did it say make your calling and election... Sure. How do you make it sure? By giving all diligence to it. This is the gospel. We, it balances the two perfectly. You know how Bob Jones balances it? This is how Bob Jones balances it. When you get to heaven and you see the pearly gates, over the pearly gates it says, Whosoever will. So you run through. And then you look back up, and there over the pearly gates on the other side, on the heavenly side, it says chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's how they balance it. Or their other balancing technique is to say it's like two tracks of a railroad. The right-hand track is the sovereignty of God and the left-hand track is the responsibility of man. And when you stand on those tracks in between them and you're wondering how they come together, you look way down the track and you see the two rails converging into one. Do you want to be on that train where the rails converge into one? (laughs) They try to reconcile it, but the Bible reconciles it. God is our our Savior. Jesus Christ is our Savior in four magnificent phases where he alone is operating by the wisdom and power of himself. Yet, for us to know that we're saved, we have the New Testament given to us, telling us what to do that we can make that election sure. I'm thankful that verse is there worded just that way. It says that I can lay up and store a good foundation against the time to come. I'm sorry, I'm a little bit off track, but I don't really care. I'll do this one way or another by God's help. It says in 1 Timothy 6 that we can lay up a good foundation against the time to come. What time to come? The great day of judgment. A good foundation? Yeah. The foundation of Matthew chapter 25. The sheep on his right hand You did all these things, so get into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's a foundation. How about the last six verses of Matthew chapter 7 as Jesus closed down the Sermon on the Mount? He that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them is like a man that dug deep and built his house on a rock. And the storms came, the storm came, the winds blew, but that house stood What is under consideration there? You and your driving test when you're 16? The storm. You having a little bit of marital difficulty and your husband's upset at you? Is that what's in there? The day of judgment is the context. Because what is the verse preceding that? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity he that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. Because you know what he had just said? Many will say to me in that day, he said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So having said that, and said that everyone that doesn't do his will, workers of iniquity are going to hell, he said, therefore, the man that heareth these sayings of mine and does them, is like a man that dug deep, built his house upon a rock, the storm came and the house stood. The man that hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do them is like a man that builds his house in the sand, the storm comes and washes the whole thing away and it is a total collapse and ruin. And what is that? It's the day of judgment. How do you know that you're going to stand in the day of judgment? Because you have obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch Paul. I know that these verses right here are the favorites of some. And at the moment, I'm thinking of our brother Scott Collins. Verse 7, Philippians 3. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So the things that Paul liked and worked hard for, he blew them out. He literally flushed them, as we'll find a word in the next verse or two. Verse 8. Yea, doubtless. There's no doubt about this. This is not questionable. Yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung. He flushed his life that I may win Christ and be found in him. Paul, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Why are you working to be found in him? You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. See, I'm going to stand with Paul. I'm not going to stand with sinners that want to comfort themselves. They're going to heaven. When anyone sounds more confident about heaven than Paul, and their life doesn't even look like Paul turned upside down, you've got a liar. They're lying to themselves. This is Paul be found in him. I have counted everything lost that I might be found in him. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him. Paul, you knew him better than anyone else on earth. That I may know him intimately and personally and the power of his resurrection, that I might have a changed life that I might have a resurrected life, and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I suffer the way he did, without opening his mouth, without threatening, without reviling, submissive to the will of God, being made conformable unto his death. I'm crucified to this world. I'm crucified to my lusts. Look at the description that the apostle Paul was seeking for himself by counting all things lost to gather, gain these descriptive phrases about him, if By any means, if by any means, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's Paul. If by any means, I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Well, now let's divide the word of God just a little bit. All men are going to attain to the resurrection of the dead in general. But there's a resurrection of the dead to life, and there's a resurrection of the dead to damnation, and the apostle Paul is speaking about the resurrection of the dead to life. And look at what he says, if by any means I might attain. Somebody will say, I thought Paul was more sure of his salvation than that. He was. He's making a point for you to follow because he's going to say in verse 15, let us therefore as many as be perfect, be thus minded. We better look at it the same way he just told us how to look at it. He's going to say, is the word attain in verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead? How about verse 12? Not as though I had already attained. I haven't attained yet. Either we're already perfect, but I follow after. I keep working. I keep running. I keep going. If I if I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. See, Paul didn't talk like other people talk. Paul didn't talk about, I know I'm going to heaven no matter what you say. Paul said, I'm laboring to make sure I go to heaven and I'll use any means possible and I have counted all things lost and I have flushed my entire life. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and those are not his sins. I have preached this so many times, those are not his sins, those are his accomplishments for Christ. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. How old are you right now? Are you in the, let's, let's divide life up into four laps of a mile race. Have I ever done this with you before? Is this all new material? Life is a one-mile race. That's a four-lap race around a 400-meter or 440-yard course track. What lap are you on? Should we slow down because we ran the first lap well? Should we slow down because we ran the second lap well? Should we slow down in the fourth lap? Dad, what lap are you on? Do you see the finish line? I meant that lovingly. You all know that he's the oldest brother in our congregation. I see the finish line. The Lord's going to have to give me a good reason to live beyond 70. Why would I want to? We're in the last lap. Dad, I'm in the last lap with you. I'll pass you soon. What are we going to do? Are we going to slow down? Or are we going to be like Paul? I'm saying all this because that's how Paul's trying to describe this to you. Forgetting those things which are behind, you don't relax and think about how you ran lap 3, 2, or 1. You don't think about it. Can I run this last lap with everything I've got? Christ. For Christ. For Christ, it's worth it. Right. Everything for Christ. All things lost for Christ. That is in the sermon that you heard, Charlie. That puts you in the waters of baptism. All things lost for Christ. And that's the key here for the Apostle Paul. I forget those things that are behind and those things are not sins. Those are his Christian accomplishments. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He didn't say, well, I've been a pretty good Joe. I made a decision for Jesus, or Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. Paul never appealed appealed to that event on the road to Damascus as evidence of his salvation. He never appealed to that. When Paul gave his final sentence about going to heaven when he died, it is 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. I know that there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me because I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, and I have kept the faith. It had nothing to do with the Damascus road. It had nothing to do with him singing, Oh, how I love Jesus. It had everything to do with he fought, he finished, and he kept on going. And so he's explaining that to us right here. There's so many things that could be said from this passage, but this passage has been preached. It's called Knowing Christ. In detail, phrase by phrase, this is a powerful, weighty passage. He said in verse 14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we want to press for. We want to be running with all our might. Some of us are in the last lap. I want to consider myself in the last lap. If if you don't think I'm quite there yet, then so be it. I I want to run like I'm in my last lap. Let's do that. Then we make our calling and election sure. Turn back one chapter to Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two. Oh, I may not be able to take you to the 50 verses that have the word wrath or the 50 verses that have the word fire or the 50 verses that have the word day of judgment. I may not be able to take you to all those verses, but that'll be okay if you're getting the message right now about how the Apostle Paul looked at it and how the Apostle Peter looked at it. And Peter said, give all diligence. Paul said, it's like a race and I will use any means to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Because Paul said this, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Right. Paul knew more about the Lord Jesus Christ than we do. He wrote down what we need to know. Philippians 2, verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, since Jesus obeyed for you as the second Adam, relax and enjoy the Christian life. No. No. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say it anywhere in the Bible. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Somebody will say to me, It sounds like you're preaching salvation by works. Thank you. Thank you for noticing. Yes, I am. I am. I'm preaching salvation by works, just the way Paul is right here in this verse. Work out your own salvation. If I want to get myself saved, I have some working to do. And you know that's the practical sense of salvation, where we have the assurance and the confidence that we're one of God's elect. But notice the words. I'm not going to cheat the word of God. We're not going to be fatalists. We're not going to comfort people that don't have a changed life. We're not going to comfort people that don't have proper, righteous, godly, loving, tender relationships. Because if you can't learn to do that, you're not saved. And we're not going to comfort you. We're going to keep pressing right on, right here. Look at that. Work out your own salvation. Can you save yourself? Yes, you can. By this text. For it is God which worketh in you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. If you work out... Doing those things that please God, Paul snuck in there in verse 13, it was God that put that inside you, but you better be working it out to know that God worked something in you. How do we know God did a work in us unless we have that work coming out of us? Men try to get rid of hell in all kinds of ways, my brethren. And we're not going to do that here. They play word games with Hades, Gehenna, Tartarus, Bema Seat Judgment. All the, they want to use Hebrew and Greek words to, dis, to deceive you. Instead of making things plainer, it makes it ridiculous. It's word games. They they want to come up with a grace revolution. Like they've got a a new handle on grace that's never been known before. That's Joseph Prince out of Singapore. The the grace revolution. They come up with annihilation like the Jehovah's Witnesses. Unconverted elect like the primitive Baptists. Okay, oh pastor, I'm getting scared. I think you're going to take away unconverted elect. I'm going to take away the unconverted elect when it's used as an excuse and an escape by primitive Baptists and other fatalists who have most of the world being unconverted elect. I'm going to preach the word of God just like Paul did. If Paul sneaks in an exception here and there, I'll preach that exception here and there. But I won't be preaching it all the time. And I'm not going to be telling you that all the Buddhists are going to heaven because they're zealous for Buddha. I'm going to be telling you that Jesus Christ is coming in flaming fire with his mighty angels to destroy all them that obey not the gospel. And I'm going way beyond believing the gospel. It's obeying the gospel. Many believe the gospel. Have we learned anything? If we have learned one thing from the gospel of John, it, it is there are many that believe that are not going to heaven. How could you not? Listen, how could you not look at Jesus Christ and believe something about him? Unless you had a job as a Pharisee that you needed to protect. And then you couldn't even go that far. But all you had to do was look at his miracles that he was doing on every hand to thousands of people. Anyway, that belief doesn't count. Where'd we go last Lord's Day? Did we go to Luke 12? And I will forewarn you, do not be afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Amazing statement, wasn't it? What does it tell us about worrying too much about our bodies? Really foolish. Really foolish. The amount of money that is spent on health for this is incredible. The exercise, the vitamins, the nutrition, the doctors, the insurance, all the stuff for this. And this is going down. It has a principle of sin in it that is destroying it at this very moment. That's right. It cannot be our priority. <laughs> Bodily exercise profiteth little. And let's not read that little phrase in a derogatory way. Bodily exercise profiteth little. It profits. Let's read it the same way that we would read chapter 5. That's 1 Timothy 4.8. 1 Timothy 5.23. Timothy, drink a little wine for thy stomach's sake. Was he mocking wine for your stomach's sake? No, he was serious. But godliness and and exercising your... But godliness is, ah, let's just get this right from the pages of Scripture. 1 Timothy 4. Exercise thyself rather unto godliness, for bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Godliness is an exercise. Godliness is something we have to work hard at. It, it requires all diligence. We had some run over Paris Mountain yesterday. That 20K race, 12 and a half miles, is considered the hardest race in the southeastern part of the United States. We had some young people run over it. We had a grandmother run over it. We had my brother Stephen run over it. And we had some teenagers... <laughs> They don't count. Did you see the way they came in? I I have a video of the way they came in. Sprinting. (laughs) Sprinting. (laughs) Laughing at each other as to who was going to nose out who at the finish line. But to run a race like that takes a great deal of fortitude while you're doing it and a great deal of training. It takes a great deal of exercise. How about godliness? Can we exercise ourselves into greater godliness? By exercising this thing... To speak the way that God wants us to speak. Because if it got Isaiah and it gets us, we should change that. Let your speech be, what does it say? Alway, always, does it say that? Let your speech be always with grace. Colossians 4 6. So our speech should always be gracious. That's what it says. And so we exercise ourselves to godliness. We can do that. We should do that. Jesus said, it doesn't matter what they can do to your body. Now, he's talking about a violent death, torture, rack, fed to lions, (laughs) burned at the stake, hung, drawn, quartered. He's referring to violent ways of dying where, by the ingenuity of man and the creativity of the devil, they exact maximum amounts of pain from a human body, and Jesus said, just a nuisance. I will forewarn you whom you should fear. Fear him which after he hath inflicted death on the body hath power to cast both that body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Do you remember that? And so what should we get from that? I like bodily exercise, but it profits little. Do I like exercising myself to godliness more? I better. Should it be close? Not close. One is far more important, and that has to be true of our whole church. Now they were warned by Jesus, don't let a painful torture session imprisoned for years with rats. Don't let that bother you. Then I want to know why people get so worked up just because they have an ache or pain here or there. That's what I tried to preach last Sunday. That's what we went over on Wednesday evening just from a very different angle. Why are we so worried about our bodies? Let's be worried about our souls. Then we'll be like Paul. Then we'll be like Peter. Then we'll be like Jesus told us to be. Not to be worried about our bodies and our physical health as much as our spirits. So, you know, yeah, we can, we can pound them a little bit. The discipline of bodily exercise has its virtues. But let's exercise ourselves unto godliness. Men fear cancer, heart attacks, and other ways of dying, but they neglect the real danger. The real danger is so much greater than those things. Obsession about physical health shows incredible stupidity, while the soul is at risk. Right. Your body's not at risk. You, your body's not at risk. See, I can already tell you exactly what's going to happen to your body. Right. It's going to get worse until you die. Yep. I can tell you. And you can't change it. But after death, there's either, hev- there's either sheep on the right hand, it's my right hand, or, sh- or goats on the left hand. It's right. either heaven or it's hell. Right. That is still up in the balance to be laid hold of from our, our viewpoint. Right. Our viewpoint, to be laid hold of. See, this is already over. I mean, it's funny. I have never in my life, because I've never been 60 before, and this is not to be funny whatsoever, never in our lives have we felt and seen the effect of taking a couple days off from intense exercise. When I was young, I could take off a week. I could take off a month, eat milk, drink milk and eat cookies and have it turn into muscle and bone. And my bench wasn't gonna go anywhere, really. We have learned and we look at each other and say, what happened? We took two days off and we're weaker because there is a principle of atrophy right. and death and decay in the body that is unprecedented. You little 40-year-olds out there and 50-year-olds and 30-year-olds and some, there's, there's others sitting in here that are older than me. That, that principle of sin is visible. Right. You can feel it. You know it as it chokes the life out of us. Because the amount of effort to exercise intensely, you think it should stay. But then when you take two days off and you go back in and you're not as strong as you were 48 or 60 or 72 hours ago, it's just a reminder of what's in us. It's a reminder. So our bodies don't matter compared to our love for Christ and our love for his word and our love of service to the brethren. And so Jesus impressed that upon us by Luke 12. I say unto you, my friends, it is a subject that we should talk about. We're all going to die. That's a given. But death of our bodies is not very important. It's how are we living to be with Christ after death. And that is what we should be provoking each other to be prepared for. I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do because man cannot reach the spirit But I will forewarn you, whom ye shall fear. Fear him, which after he hath killed, God has the power of body and spirit, can cast both of them into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Do you remember Luke 16? The Lazarus, the beggar, was carried into the bosom of Abraham by angels. The rich man died and was buried, and I'm sure it was a fancy funeral. But he lifted up his eyes in hell. You wouldn't have thought it, looking at that funeral that he had, the glory that was paid to him. Think Psalm 49, if you're wondering where that's coming from, the glory that men will put on others when they die. But he lifted up his eyes in hell. He was in hell! And the way that Jesus described it, he asked for a drop of water on a finger of Lazarus to cool his parched tongue in the flames Of torment. That was Luke 16. We went to Revelation 20. And whosoever was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire. We went to Matthew 7. Where it said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. All the rest are going to say, Lord, we, we know you. We served you. We were in church. We were church members. We remember the first Baptist. We preached. We did mighty miracles. We were charismatics. We healed. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And now I've added something to that today. I've given you the last verses of Matthew 7. Those are the penultimate lesson. That is the penultimate lesson of Matthew 7. The final lesson was building your house. And your house is your life and it's your eternal life. Will it be with God, or will it be with the devils? Of how you build your house, by hearing and keeping the sayings of Jesus Christ. We went to Matthew five. Did Matthew five say, that if you say without a cause thou fool, that you're in danger of hell, fire? Mm -hmm. Who said that? Jesus of Nazareth said that. Hell, fire, because you are a murderer by violating the sixth commandment, by calling someone names, without a just cause and you don't determine the cause or the justness of it God does in his word Matthew 8 devils know that they're going to be tormented and they ask Jesus if he was come to torment them before their time Matthew 13 tares will be cast into the fire and wheat gathered into the garner Matthew 13 Good fish are kept. Evil fish are thrown away. Matthew 22, guest, why don't you friend? Friend, why don't you have a wedding garment on? Right. What are you here in my son's wedding? What are you doing in the gospel of Jesus Christ without a wedding wow. garment? Right. And he wow. was speechless. speechless. God doesn't care what you think or say about your cause, The righteous are going to say, Lord, we don't know why we're on your right hand. And he will explain it to them, that they belong on his right hand because of what they did during their lives. Matthew 25, you read it last night, depart from me ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. What is the criterion? What is the acid test in Matthew 25, 31 through 46? the last third of that chapter of who is in heaven and who is in hell. Love of the brethren. To the least of these, my brethren. Over and over and over and over it is repeated. That is why love is the greatest. That is why brotherly kindness and charity are number seven and number eight of the eight things that are to be added to our faith which is way down here and proves nothing more than a devil. The way we treat other people, the respect we show them, the love we show them, the service that we show them, and it is not a matter of the heart, it is a matter of actions, because Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me. So it's hospitality. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was naked, you gave me clothes. So it's charity, it's money, it's stuff. When I was in prison, you visited me. It's actions, and all those things are known. When Dorcas died in Acts chapter 9, called Tabitha, when she died, did everyone know she was elect? Do you remember how we know she was elect? Without Peter telling us. Remember? When Peter arrived there and went into that room where she was stretched out in the bed dead, all the widows were standing around showing the garments that she had made for them while she was alive. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, be baptized in his name, and love the brethren. Dorcas did it. Tabitha did it. Sacrificially, excitedly, zealously, fervently, cheerfully. that's That's what Matthew 25... It's hard... Matthew 25. There it is. So plain, so simple. And we ended last week with Mark chapter 9 where Jesus said, if your hand offends you, cut it off. If your foot offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. And he said five times in six verses because there's a fire that will never be quenched that you're going to go to. And if you try to preserve your right hand and preserve your right foot and preserve your right eye, then your whole body is going to go into hell fire where the worm dieth not your spirit and soul is constantly conscious and the fire is never quenched. He said that over and over and over in six verses. He said, how much better would it be to enter into life halt? You know, on one foot, one hand cut off or blind, he used the words maimed, halt, blind. Wouldn't it be better to live life in this world that way than to go to hell? Right. And it's a metaphor and it means cut off something practical, useful, and precious to you in order to please God and Jesus Christ and to make your calling and election sure and not go to hell because you want to keep those little things in your life. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.